From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. And it is indeed a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Talking faith, family, and fellowship, Father Wade is globetrotting. He is in uh, British Columbia, Canada on a parish mission, so we've recorded this, and we actually have Father Wade live in the studio. (laughs) I always say Father Wade is in the house today. He's in our house uh, to record this program, so we are grateful to have him here. If you would like to be part of a future mailbag program, because we won't be taking your phone calls today, write that question down. Put it in an email. Send it to openline at EWTN.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. I'm told Charles Beery is producing the program. That we're, The jury is still out on that, but I believe Charles Beery is actually producing the program. And your host, as he is every Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes, the pride of the Azores. <laughs> a, and, and he has a word that they use in the valley for people of Portuguese descent, but I, I'm not going to try it. It's Portuguese. Portuguese. <laughs> just, a, just a good old Portuguese. Portuguese, <laughs> okay. Now, I'm assuming that you guys are not uh, exactly a novel happening in the San Joaquin Valley. Oh, oh no, we we are we are a happy. Oh, really? oh yeah, oh, there's still a lot of Portuguese there. No, that's what I'm saying. You're, oh. you're not exactly a novelty there. Oh, I see. There's what you're plenty yeah. of you. There, there are plenty of us. That is correct. Yes, uh, and, and a lot of them are in the farming industry. A lot of them are in the dairy industry. So, yes, that is correct. And I'm, I'm glad you you made it clear, Jack, that I'm here this week. But by the time this airs, I will be in British Columbia, Canada. Beautiful British Columbia, Canada, I might add. Uh, and thus making it clear to our listeners, Jack, that I am not bilocating like Padre Pio. I like to say I tried bilocating once, but I broke a leg. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. So, <yeah. laughs> so uh, we got an email from Nathan in Essex in the UK, and he says, Our parish has a new priest who has told us not to say amen when receiving the Eucharist, only silently in our hearts. I am perplexed. I thought that responding aloud with amen was a public pronouncement of our belief. Is this wrong? What should I tell the priest? Okay, Nathan, great question, and thank you for your listenership from England, from the UK. Uh, I'm presuming, Nathan, that you are referring to the ordinary form of the Mass, that is, the Reformed Roman Rite. Uh, We could also call it the Reformed Roman Rite of the Second Vatican Council. Personally, I don't like to use the phrase Novus Ordo anymore, which literally is Latin for New Order, meaning the New Order of Mass. It's 55 plus years old. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to be 59 and I'm not new, right? So I don't like to use the phrase new mass. Not that you did, Nathan, but I just want to make this a teachable moment. I like, I like the phrase ordinary form or the reformed Roman rite or the reformed Roman rite of the Second Vatican Council or the Vatican II mass would also be uh, a phrase that could be used. So if this is indeed the case and you're referring to this mass from the Second Vatican Council, I don't know why you're priest is doing that, and it's sad that he is doing that, because in the order of Mass from the Second Vatican Council, when the recipient of Holy Communion says amen, it's doubling as an act of faith. Now, in the extraordinary form of the Mass from the 1962 Missal, the the priest who's distributing Holy Communion makes the act of faith for the person receiving. 
One of the beautiful growths, and remember, Pope Benedict XVI says the two forms of the Mass should learn from one another. One of the things that grew out of the Reformed Roman Rite of the Second Vatican Council, the ordinary form of the Mass, is that the person makes their own act of faith. There's a maturity implied there in the life of the Christian from the age of reason onwards when they can begin to receive Holy Communion, because it's around the age of reason where they make their first reconciliation, that is their first confession and their first Holy Communion. This implies a certain maturity on the part of the Christian. They make their own act of faith. Well, the Amen said aloud in the ordinary form of the Mass illustrates this beautifully. So I, I don't know why your pastor is not doing it. As far as approaching your pastor about it, again, this is presuming it's the ordinary form of the Mass, yes, by all means you should do that. But I would do it in a way that St. Thomas Aquinas teaches us uh, when giving fraternal correction or a fraternal inquiry, in this case, uh, asking your pastor. We do it privately, charitably, and rarely. We do it privately so as not to embarrass the person in front of other people when we're questioning them. We do it charitably because charity is the queen of the virtues, right? Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, we're told in the New Testament. And we do it rarely because he's an adult. Your pastor's an adult. He shouldn't have to be asked every single time you see him why he's not permitting his flock to say the amen. If he doesn't correct it, I would write a very charitable uh simple letter, one paragraph letter to your bishop, letting your bishop know about this and letting your bishop correct it, because it is a violation of the rubric. It is a violation of the mind of the reform of the sacred liturgy after Vatican II, where the person receiving says amen aloud as an act of faith. So it is worth talking to your pastor about first, and if to no avail there, Nathan, then I would go ahead and and uh, write your bishop a very charitable, simple one-paragraph letter, letting him know about it, and then letting him correct his pre-son. Great question, uh, Nathan. Thank you so much. Again, a special mailbag edition of Open Line Tuesday. No phone calls today, please. Uh, Henry writes in, Hi, love the show. During Mass, before the Our Father, my priest says something like, "We We pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. But... The Missal has the prayer at our Savior's command and informed by divine teaching, we dare to say. I was under the the assumption the priest needs to say the prayer from the Missal. Am I right? (laughs) Well, here we have a similar situation, do we not? So it's, it's a violation, as was Nathan's question, of what's rubrically to be said. In Nathan's question that we just went through, um, we, uh, we have something that the person says, uh, that's not being said, presumably because the priest doesn't want the person to say it, the congregant, the, the, the parishioner in the pew to say it, uh, when, when they come up to Holy Communion to receive the sacred host, the Holy Eucharist. In this case, we have a part of the priest. It's a part that the priest says, and he's not saying it uh, not, not at all, but he's not saying it correctly. So again, uh, he should be clearly saying what is in the Roman Missal in his introduction words of the Our Father, and he's clearly not doing that. So I would approach him again privately, charitably, and rarely, and uh, the three hallmarks of St. Thomas Aquinas's giving fraternal correction, and approach him that way. And if it's to no avail, uh, then write your bishop a simple, very charitable one-paragraph letter showing no anger towards your parish priest in your letter to the bishop, just 
write very charitably to the bishop, say, Father, so-and-so is clearly not doing this. I have approached him one time. He's not doing it, and, and Bishop, uh, I wish he would do it. And then let, let the bishop handle it. Uh, you know, my brother priests, I, I don't know why they don't simply follow. You know, Jack, I think I've said before on Open Line Tuesday, I love the rubrics of the Mass. I love what's in the red telling me what to say in the black, you know. Uh, it, it makes my job easier. I don't have to think things out, right? And it's beautiful sacral language, uh, like that introduction to the Our Father. It's it's It comes from the revision of the Roman Missal from a few years back in the third typical edition of the Roman Missal. And it's much more beautiful, sacral, that is, sacred language. And so uh, I, I love the language of the Roman Missal, and as I do the, the translation of, of the new lectionary that we're using now, which came out a few years earlier than the Missal's translation did. Uh, but as far as why my brother priests don't simply follow what's in the black, according to what's written in the red. By the way, the word rubric comes from the Latin rubio, meaning red. So the the red wording in the Roman Missal is describing what the priest needs to say and how he needs to say it, whether bowing or in solo voce, low voice, or saying aloud, or turning towards the people and saying, those are the red-worded rubrics. And then the black wording is literally what he says. So uh, we have a saying in the Fathers of Mercy, you know, uh, uh, do the red and say the black. In fact, I think we might even have a coffee cup that says that, you know, in our in our refectory, you know, <laughs> do the red and say the black. So there, there you have it. That that's the easiest thing to to be done there. You know, we had a there's a parish in Des Moines, Iowa, when my late wife Susie and I and our children were small. Uh, it's a it's a minor basilica, and and there's a Dominican priest who is the administrator at the parish and still is has been mm-hmm. for many many years, but. He uh, he was asked that question by someone at a during a Q and A after some sort of an event at the parish, and um, and he said they said and someone asked him, you know, Father, you you seem to always be staring at the book up yeah. there, and you seem to be like reading the words. At this point, don't you know the words <laughs> by heart? You know, it's not always easy to remember the different parts of the Mass. For example, the Eucharistic prayer, we have four primary options. There's others for like at a Mass with children present that you could use. There's reconciliation Eucharistic prayers for Masses specifically of reconciliation. So, you know, you, you know the main parts of the Mass by heart, but you still want to follow and be faithful. Yeah, and he told that person, I read it because they told me I'm supposed to read it. <laughs> Amen. Amen, brother. <laughs> it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. And you may not recognize it not only because... It's a very special mailbag edition, but 
I also totally spaced your springboard topic. <laughs> no, I don't think so, Jack, and I'll tell you why. I think our springboard today was about the wonderful Portuguese culture. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I think, you know, not much needed to be said. It's, it speaks for itself. It was a short springboard. You know, pretty awesome Portuguese culture, and we just moved on. There you go. All right. I'll, I'll go with that. Very good. Our next email is from Xander, and he says, I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan. I had a question about the church's teaching regarding salvation. Objectors often claim that we are saved by faith and not by works, pointing to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which explicitly says we are not saved by works as evidence. I was under the impression that we, were, that we are technically saved by faith, but that we simply cannot have faith without works. In other words, we cannot have the first without the second, and so in a way we are saved by works, though not directly. It seems to me that any teaching saying that we are directly saved by our own good works would violate Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Is this what the church teaches? Xander, you're spot on in this regard, and I'll direct you to the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph numbers 1814, 1815, and 1816. It explains very beautifully that uh, our living faith works through charity. You know, I say many times, uh, for example, the atonement of, of the temporal punishment due to venial sins and or mortal sins can be done in part through different avenues, like seeking out a plenary or partial indulgence, or carrying out any combination of the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And I always qualify it by saying, not for the works themselves, but for the charity they foster. The same thing with the 14 works of mercy, the seven bodily works of mercy, or for the body, what we call the corporal works of mercy, and the seven spiritual works of mercy for the soul, which we call indeed the spiritual works of mercy, carrying out any combination of those with the willed intention of carrying out those good works uh, to atone for any temporal punishment for already forgiven mortal and venial sin, but again qualifying not for the works themselves, but rather for the charity they foster. So 1814 says very beautifully, Faith is the theological virtue by which we believe in God and believe all that he has said and revealed to us, and that Holy Mother Church proposes for our belief because he, Christ, is truth itself. By faith, man freely commits his entire self to God. For this reason, the believer seeks to know and do God's will. The righteous shall live by faith. We're told, in Romans 1.7 and Galatians 5.6 also confers with that. And so we say that living faith works through charity. And this is tied to what Genesis says in chapter 1. It is not good that man be alone. So he made a complimentary helpmate for him. In other words, we are social by nature. When Jesus gives us the Our Father, he gives us the Our Father in the first person plural. I've said this before in Open Line Tuesday. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. Not give me this day my daily bread and forgive me my trespasses. No, we're social by nature. So there has to be good works, not for the works themselves, but for the goodness they prosper in the greatest of the three, the, the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. So 1815 tells us, the gift of faith remains in one who has not sinned against it, but faith apart from works is dead. That's James 2.26. When it is deprived of hope and love, faith does not fully unite the believer to Christ and does not make him a living member of his body. But Xander, you know what the problem with that is, that passage? 
from James 2.26, that faith without works is dead, is that Martin Luther threw out James. He called the book of James a pile of straw. So our Protestant brothers and sisters don't have the book of James, and that's a very sad thing. 1815, again, uh, the gift of faith remains in one who has not sinned against it, but faith apart from works is dead. That's the catechism quoting James 2.26 in footnote 81 of paragraph 1815. When it is deprived of hope and love, faith does not fully unite the believer to Christ and does not make him a living member of his body. And lastly, 1816, Xander, the disciple of Christ must not only keep the faith and live on it, but also profess it, confidently bear witness to it, and spread it. All, however, must be prepared to confess Christ before all men and to follow him along the way of the cross amidst the persecutions which the church never lacks. Service of and witness to the faith are necessary for salvation. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge also before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And that's quoting Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. So there you go, Xander. Thank you for a great question. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Uh, Lynn writes in, is it possible to see an angel in a dream? Uh, Lynn is her name, you said? Mm-hmm. Lynn, it's possible to see anything in a dream. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem with dreams. <laughs> now, it is possible that God can speak through dreams. Uh, we see this in the life of St. Joseph, I think a total of three times, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so it is possible for God to speak through a dream and also uh, through an angel directly or through an angel in a dream, like Joseph experienced. So, you know, it is possible to see it. How it's going to be manifested will maybe be dependent upon the person. Uh, that's something that one takes to his or her spirit, spiritual director and or regular confessor to discern the authenticity of it. If it happens once, twice, three times, even four times across a period of the calendar, I would pay no heed to it. But if it's something that happens somewhat regularly beyond, say, four times in, in a shorter period of time, it's something that's worth taking to one's confessor or spiritual director and opening up about it to him or her, if it's a spiritual director, because a spiritual director doesn't have to be a priest. A confessor has to be a priest, but a spiritual director does not. Share it with your spiritual director and or confessor, and, or, or, to, or to both of them, and uh, see if, if they give you the same discernment feedback back to you, and that will help you discern on the authenticity. But generally, we, we don't pay attention to those types of things, even though it is possible. Jim wants to know if we can pray to the blesseds or just to saints. How does the Church feel about this? Well, that's a great question. Uh, You know, blesseds may receive public veneration, no doubt, but usually it's at the local or regional level, usually restricted to those uh, geographical locations and or dioceses and or religious institutes closely associated with the blesseds life. So here we're talking about someone who's been formally declared blessed by the Church. There's no doubt they can receive public veneration, but usually that public veneration is reserved to uh, their local or regional locale, you know, the the area they were from, the area they died in. By the way, it's interesting, uh, Jack, for the benefit of our listeners, I'm 
sure you probably already know this, but whenever a cause is introduced for sainthood, and of course there's a hierarchy there of proclamations by the church, you know, uh, there's servant of God first, then venerable, then blessed, then canonization. But the process is introduced in the diocese where the person died, which is kind of interesting. Um, quite often when a feast day is assigned to a, a saint, once they're canonized, an official uh, uh, feast day for that saint, and that doesn't happen until they, they are officially canonized. Um, it, it's usually around the day they died, if not the day they died. So that's interesting. So yes, blesseds may receive public veneration, but usually it's for the local or regional level uh, that they were involved with with their life or the area where they died or where the diocese is or religious institutes closely associated with that person's life. Um, very quickly, I just wanted to remind you that for over 40 years, EWTN has been praying with and for people throughout the world. And today we want to pray for anything that weighs on your heart, such as family members, health, or finances. It's our honor, truly, to pray for you. Please take a moment now and send us your prayer request. Simply go to EWTN.com slash prayer. Um, Diana writes in, could you please discuss, well, she says Father Wade, could you please discuss and explain the various postures that are acceptable for receiving communion? For example, bowing and kneeling. Is one more holy than the other or preferred? And why have the postures changed over the years? Great series of questions there. And uh, how great is it that we've had quite a few Eucharistic questions this hour in the midst of the three-year Eucharistic revival called for by our bishops in this country. So that's a great thing. So there's four ways to receive communion that are permitted by the Church via the Roman Missal. One may receive kneeling, and while kneeling, receiving directly on the tongue. Number two, while kneeling, receiving reverently on the hand with one open palm open over the other completely open palm, making a true Eucharistic throne. Or one may receive standing and receiving the Eucharist directly on the tongue from the person who's distributing Holy Communion, which is a, a bishop, priest, deacon, as ordinary ministers, or a layperson who's an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion who's been properly delegated or properly deputed to hold that office, either for one Mass only or for a series of Masses. And the fourth way one can receive is also standing, but on the hand directly with the true Eucharistic throne. So again, two ways to receive kneeling while kneeling, that is directly on the tongue, or directly on the hand while kneeling, and two ways to receive while standing, that is directly on the tongue while standing, or directly in the hand while standing. If in the hand of either of those two ways that we receive in the hand, kneeling or standing, you want to make a true Eucharistic throne, or you can receive on the tongue, and if you do that, you want to put out your tongue reasonably out, usually to the bottom lower rim of your lower lip, uh, there's really no need to do more beyond that, uh, lest the host risk falling off the person's tongue. Um, nor do you not want to put out your tongue far enough where the priest or the person distributing Holy Communion has to literally, with their index finger and thumb holding the consecrated host, have to enter your mouth. You don't want that either. So there is an etiquette. There is a decorum. There is a reverent way to receive. So again, if receiving on the tongue, put out your tongue as far as the lower rim line of your lower lip. 
And all four ways can be received very, very reverently, just as all four ways can be received irreverently. I've seen this. I, uh, you know, I, for the people receiving directly on the tongue, I've, I've had people who don't put out their tongue. I've, I've had people who almost turtle snap with their fingers my index and thumb. Really, truly. I've seen it. Yeah. And then for those receiving on the hand, I've seen people not make a Eucharistic throne with both open palms. They put out just one hand while the other hand is on their hip. And I have those people, I have to ask if they're Catholic, do they realize what they're doing? Because it's so irreverent how they're receiving. Then people receiving on the hand, I have the pill poppers. They, they, they pop the consecrated host like it's an aspirin, and that's irreverent. So there's a way to do it right. Why does the church have these different ways? Because she is in charge of her discipline over the liturgy. That's why. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Benitez. It's a very special mailbag edition, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Boy, Father Wade, if they could see what goes on during the breaks... We even, got, we even got when it. they even when the even when the two minute break turns into a twenty two minute break, <laughs> just you just never know what's going to happen on a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. This is the grand difference between live radio and pre recorded radio. <laughs> you know, and it's it, it, it's it, it's funny that you mention that because these things don't really happen when we're live. No, no. But if you, which I, is maybe, actually a good thing, if the mistakes yeah. are going to happen, innocent mistakes, I might add, innocent mistakes. It's better they happen with pre-recorded shows yeah yeah so you know who never makes a mistake our lord an itinerant missionary preacher <laughs> oh you're or so you're, i've been told you're, you're you're too kind well let me tell you what we're looking or for. maybe it was just one particular itinerant missionary <laughs> preacher named ken geracy who oh, told me that oh that, that could not be the case well let, let me tell you what what is the sign of specifically a missionary preacher who is a father of mercy and it's not necessarily perfection, huh? What are some of the signs of a Fathers of Mercy vocation? We Fathers of Mercy are looking for good, solid Catholic men who are unabashedly in love with our Lord Jesus Christ and His Bride, the Church. Men who want to help transform a veritable culture of death into a culture of life and love by showing and giving it the mercy of God. We seek virtuous men for the Fathers of Mercy, men who, despite their own failings, have experienced the mercy of God themselves and so are able to give that great gift to others. Men who want to live joyfully the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience, all while living and sharing a common life of prayer, work, and fraternity, while carrying out a dynamic preaching apostolate of week-long parish missions, preaching devotions, preaching retreats and conferences. We're looking for men 18 to 40 years of age who are contemplating a religious vocation with a religious institute uh, that carries out an active preaching apostolate. So uh, contact our vocation director, Father Joseph Morgan, at vocations at fathersofmercy.com. That's the word vocation with an S at the end of it. Vocations at fathersofmercy.com. That's Father Joseph Morgan's direct email address. Or you can check us out at our community website at fathersofmercy.com. Again, fathersofmercy.com. I got an email here from Jillian, and she says, Hello, May I request you to please address my question to one of your open line programs? This is one of our open line programs. Yesterday, Father Wade Menezes 
spoke about accessory to sin mm. in answer to one of the questions, and it got me thinking of my own situation. Our daughter, 22 years old, graduate student, is financially dependent on us, as in we pay tuition and rent. So if for some reason she does not practice the faith, does not attend Sunday Mass, would our actions, paying for her expenses, be considered as accessory to sin? I've always tried to stress the importance of making time for God, prayer, Mass, service, and church, and I've told her that I do not want to be in a situation where I find that I'm enabling, by paying her expenses, her to move away from the faith. I think she goes for Sunday Mass when convenient, but does nothing else to grow her faith or live out the faith. Is enabler or accessory to sin the same thing? Do you have any suggestions on how I can approach this matter without cutting off financial support? She is an excellent student, and I really do not want her to have to take out a loan or discontinue her studies. Great, great series of questions. Are we going to rob a bank? And no, we're not okay, going to. We're not going to rob a, ba- a bank, Jack. But uh, great series of questions. So, first of all, being an enabler and being a direct accessory to one's sin are two different things. And I like the way the mother worded this entire question with a series of questions because it shows that she has a qualm of conscience about helping the daughter financially when the daughter is not always fulfilling her Sunday obligation, okay? Let's answer the first part of the question first. Uh, What is an accessory to prayer? It's when you assist the person directly in their sinful activity. The mother is not telling the daughter verbatim, don't go to Mass, don't go to Mass. No, that would be direct accessory to the daughter not fulfilling her Sunday obligation. Uh, When the Church teaches that you can be an accessory to another's sin, the Church means, via sacred scripture, I might add, and upheld by the magisterial teaching of the Church, there's nine primary ways that you can be that accessory. By counsel, by command, by consent, by provocation, by praise or flattery, by concealment, by partaking of the sin directly yourself, by silence to the sin, and by defense of the sinful action. So these are nine ways. That's pretty insightful. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, and the Catechism mentions these. So uh, uh, these are the nine ways, but it's implied that you are assisting by counsel, by command, by cons- consent, by provocation, by praise or flattery, by concealment, by partaking, by silence, or by defense of the sinful action directly with the sinful action itself. So now that answers that part. So no, the mother's not doing it by simply helping the daughter uh, financially with college. She's not partaking directly in the daughter's sin of not uh, fulfilling her Sunday obligation, which, if not for a good reason, is still objectively a mortal sin. And if the daughter knows about the fulfillment of the Sunday obligation and she still wills to do it, it's subjectively a mortal sin as well, because it's grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and done with deliberate consent of the daughter's will in that case, if the daughter knows the teaching about Sunday obligation. And by the way, it's an obligation, Sunday Mass is, every Sunday is a holy day of obligation. It's an obligation not because we fear God, but because we love Him. That's why. He gives us 168 hours in a week, 24 times 7. Can we not give Him one which simultaneously fulfills the first three of the Ten Commandments? The first three commandments have to do with love of, of God, and the remaining seven have to do with love of neighbor. God doesn't even 
command that the majority of his commandments have to do with love and obeying of him. It has to do with loving of neighbor. What do you think of that? Only three have to do with loving God. Can we not give him one hour of Sunday congregational worship uh, as an obligation out of love rather than fear to fulfill those first three commandments? So that all said, the the mother's conscience is qualm that she might be enabling the daughter a little bit. So I, I close with this. I know many parents who are uh, helping their, their kids financially while the kids are away at school, going to college, because they want to help the, the, their child not have a lot of student loans. That said, uh, they seek demands from the students while at college, uh, like fulfilling your Sunday obligation, like staying close to the sacrament of reconciliation, etc. They demand that from the child, and hopefully the child is not dissing one over the parents and saying they are doing those things, but in reality not doing those things. So uh, it's up to the parents. Now, this mother doesn't mention a spouse at all. It could be that the father is not involved in the child's life. It could be the parents are divorced, or it could be the father passed away and the mother is a widow. She doesn't say one way or the other, but if the parents are together, or even if they're not together, let's say there's a separation or a civil divorce in place, but they're helping the daughter financially together, they're helping the child together go off to college and not have to take out loans, the parents should show a united force in what they're requiring of the child while they help financially support the child so that they don't enable the child in bad behavior, like not partaking of your Sunday Mass obligation and forgoing all those baptismal graces and not receiving the Eucharist. I mean, this is a point of evangelization here. So no, it's not directly assisting as an accessory to sin as the Church teaches it by those nine ways that we can be an accessory to another sin, but I would say there could be some enabling factors there that would need to be remedied. Again, a very special mailbag edition of Open Line Tuesday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Gary writes in, when we receive the Eucharist into our mouths, are we to consume it immediately or can we wait until we return to our pew? Another great Eucharistic question dealing with the communion rite. You know, the the Church doesn't specify one way or the other, you know. A lot of this has to do with physiology, Jack. I mean, the, the host could could melt immediately in the person's mouth by the time they get back to the pew. Uh, But they're welcome to, you know, lightly chew it on their way back to their pew. They're welcome to not start chewing till they get back to the pew, but some dissolvement will already have started taking place in their process of going back to their pew, and that dissolvement can end once they get in the pew. The Church doesn't teach anything on this. We want to receive it reverently. We want to consume it reverently. I I remember having a, a parishioner approached me one time at a parish mission telling me that that I was wrong in saying this. That she says, well, Father, I was taught by my mother, you never ever let your teeth touch the Eucharist. And I says, well, the church just doesn't teach that. That's not what the church teaches. I don't know where your mother got that from. Maybe your mother, without telling you the fullness of her reasoning, just wanted it to dissolve naturally in your mouth with the saliva processes, if we can be honest and say, call it what it is. Your mother wanted you to have the Eucharist reverently dissolve through the natural saliva processes so that maybe no particles got caught in between your teeth or whatever. But even if that happens, it will eventually dissolve within 15 minutes. The only thing the Church teaches is that for about 15 minutes, give or take, again, this depends on physiology, the Eucharist is present, and we are a living tabernacle, a tabernaculum, a living tabernacle. Uh, of the consecrated species when we, re- when we receive it, for about 15 minutes, give or take. Uh, but as far as 
how you actually consume it, quote unquote, whether through natural dissolvement or chewing, that's up to you. Just let it be done reverently. I remember when my children were preparing for their first communion, each of them in the second grade, I remember Mrs. Caligiri instructing each of them in a group with their classmates that she doesn't expect it to look like they're eating popcorn at the movie when they're coming back from Holy Communion. There you go. Like No chomping, I think I said. Yeah, she's right. Good on her, you know. But it doesn't mean that one can't do a slight chewing or just naturally dissolve, you know. When the priest consumes his host, he's got to receive the precious blood right afterwards. So he's going to chew it a little more rapidly. This is provided he doesn't receive both species by intinction. He receives the host by itself, which is usually a larger host. Then he receives the precious blood right afterwards. Well, because he receives the precious blood right afterwards, he's going to be chewing his larger host a little bit more quickly than what the laity would be chewing their size host, which is much smaller. But even then, the priest shouldn't chomp on it and do it so fast to consume the precious blood so fast after receiving the host that it looks irreverent. Connie says, hello and thank you for fielding my question. I'm looking for a spiritual director, and it's hard to know where to start. I've been told to just call around and see if a parish priest is able or willing to assist. The priest at my parish also has a school, and he's just too busy. There is a priest I met at a retreat who has a nearby parish. I plan to contact them. The question is, when I've sought spiritual direction outside of my own parish, is it customary to pay them? And if so, what is an acceptable amount? Great question. Well, provided a priest takes you on or provided a layperson takes you on as a spiritual director, uh, as their as your spiritual director, I should say, you would want to talk to the individual person about what they expect for their, their payment. You know, the New Testament does tell us the laborers worth their wage. And usually spiritual direction is given once a month for about 20 minutes to a half an hour. That's all. Spiritual direction is not something that's done often and a lot. It's usually a monthly meeting, could be a 45-minute meeting, definitely under an hour, and it's only an area or two at the most, generally speaking, that you and your confessor, excuse me, you and your spiritual director are talking about. Remember, a confessor has to be a priest, but a spiritual director does not have to be a priest. A spiritual director may be a priest, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, I've met many, many good spiritual directors in my travels. I meet them the week that I'm at the parish. They happen to be there, and they tell me, yeah, I'm the spiritual director on staff of the parish, who are actually laity. They're licensed psychologists. In one case, it was a licensed psychiatrist. And this was their way of, of tithing above and beyond what they needed to tithe in, in what they wanted to financially, they tithe it above and beyond by giving office hours to the parish where they serve, this layman or laywoman, a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, uh, gave office hours to the parish, and the, the parish provided them with um, uh, an office space, which they were able to set up how they wanted, and they took on directees, uh, you know, once a week, uh, maybe just one or two a week, but once a week. And these were psychiatrists and psychologists that were near retirement or maybe had already quasi-retired. So they gave, you know, two to four hours a week at the parish. And so that was an added way of tithing with their talent, with their profession. So, uh, and these are, these are lay people who practice the faith. They're solid Catholics. They understand the sacramental economy of the Church. They go to regular confession themselves. They re- receive regular Eucharist themselves. What a great spiritual director, right? So remember, your director doesn't have to be a priest. It may be a priest, but it doesn't have to be a priest. And then as far as the stipend or a payment, I I know of one spiritual director who was a priest who said, hey, for payment, 
just give me a, a, a Walmart card, you know, for my groceries. And you don't even have to do it every month, every other month, you know, a hundred bucks or, or, or 150 bucks. And you're helping provide my groceries. He was very modest about it, you know, and, and that's all that was needed in his case. So just talk to your director about it once you set up a time to meet what you're going to talk about and how often that will be so that it's fully understood in advance. When, when somebody approaches a priest, I might add this, Jack, and I'll end with this. When somebody approaches a priest and says, Father, will you be my spiritual director? The priest's red light goes up right away because the priest, especially if he's by himself at a parish, he has no associate pastors. He's thinking, okay, what is this person hoping to get from me? A weekly meeting for an hour? I just don't have that time. I'm here by myself. I just don't have that time. So when you approach a priest or, or any spiritual director, really, lay or cleric, let them know up front what you're hoping for. Father, I'm wondering if you take on spiritual directees as a director. I'm looking for something just once a month for about a half hour is all. I'm willing to give a stipend or a gift card, whatever you think is appropriate. Um, and, and there's only two areas in my life that I want to focus on. I don't see the spiritual direction needing to continue on, Father, after five or six sessions. I'm hoping it would be resolved by then. When you show that kind of know-how to the person, layer cleric, that you're asking to be your spiritual director, you're more apt to get a positive response from them. The destination for great Catholic audio programming is EWTN's Podcast Central. It features the best of EWTN radio as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates around the world, all in one place, and all of it is free. No Walmart gift cards, no nothing. Visit EWTN.com slash radio slash podcasts today. Can I say Walmart on, on our show? Is that okay? I, I should did. have asked you first. I oh, did. well, you did too. Okay. Yeah, so There you go. Um, <laughs> Deborah writes in. She's in Michigan, and she says, Hello. I am now convinced as a non-Catholic that the real presence of Christ is in the Catholic Eucharist. The Eucharistic miracles I've read about are very compelling, as I've been watching various programs on EWTN. I now have a great desire, which I believe God has put there, to partake, but I cannot because I am not a Catholic. I find this very off-putting. I can't believe this would be Jesus' intent. I read the Didache. It states one must be baptized in the Lord's name in order to partake, of which I have been. So what am I to do? Any other communion now seems pointless. What a what a beautiful, heartfelt letter. And and my question to her would be, if I was a pastor of a parish and she came to me and asked me these same questions, would be, why stop at the Eucharist? What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic and receiving the fullness of the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith? Let's go through the creed. Let's read about those 40-plus truths that are mentioned in the creed that we pray every Sunday at Mass. Why stop with the greatness of the Eucharist? Granted, it is the source and summit, but why stop with that? And you are right about what the Didache says. One must be baptized and believe. True enough. And guess what? If you have a valid baptism, when you enter the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church will accept that baptism that you already have. But if there's reason to believe that it wasn't done in a proper Trinitarian formula, then you will be baptized conditionally in a proper Trinitarian formula. Uh, So yeah, I, I would say I agree with her wholeheartedly, but remember, Holy Communion is just about that. Communion. 
And when we talk about communion with the Catholic Church, it's not just the doctrine of the Eucharist per se, the miracle of transubstantiation per se. No, it's about everything the Church teaches, even those things that extend apart from the Creed and apart from the Ten Commandments, like abortion being a moral evil, like standing up for natural marriage and family life, those types of things, okay? The Church's social justice doctrine, uh, her just war theory, uh, her teaching against the um, against euthanasia, the immorality of euthanasia. We want to embrace everything. So like, for example, euthanasia falls from the fourth commandment, thou shall not kill. So it's not just the Ten Commandments per se as we read them. It's not just the 40 plus truths in the Nicene Creed as we read them. There's many other truths of our one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. We call those the four marks of the one true church. She's one holy Catholic and apostolic. So I would invite this person to look at the RCA program to become fully a Catholic, because holy communion, that is receiving the Eucharist, receiving holy communion is about just that communion. And and the, the there's a theology, I like to say, Jack, a theology literally, physically, the actual physicality of the communion line, of the bodies in line, there's a theology there. Everybody in that line is precisely in Holy Communion with the Church to receive Holy Communion. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Hello, Father Wade. I am Pauline from Kenya in East Africa. Have really learned a lot about my about the Catholic faith from your podcasts. My question is this. While praying for, this is what I call a rubber meets the road question. While praying for my intentions during Holy Mass, is there a difference between one, during the offertory, giving the offering with my intention in mind, or two, giving the priest before Holy Mass a stipend to offer Mass for that intention? Good question. I, I don't think you would be able to approach the priest just before the Mass to give him a stipend for that Mass he's about to celebrate, because chances are he already has an intention for that Mass he's about to celebrate. Now, let's say you go to the parish secretary a month before your mother's birthday. You want to have a Mass said for your mother on her birthday. So you go to the parish office a month in advance, and you offer the stipend, and that would be the amount of what your diocese has regulated. Uh, I don't know what it is in Kenya, but in the United States, most dioceses are $10 per Mass. Uh, the more rural dioceses are $5 per Mass. Uh, and again, St. Paul says the laborer is worth his wage. That's the whole meaning behind a stipend, because the, the priest is carrying out a sacred work, right? So let's say you go to the parish secretary a month in advance, and you ask for that specific date of your mother's birthday. The secretary may say, well, yes, we have that date open. Okay, let, let's set it up for your mom that day. Or the secretary may say, well, no, that day is not open, but three days after that day is open. And then you have the choice whether or not you still want to have a Mass set on that day. I would go ahead and still have it done. And you, you pay for the stipend then. God already knows your intention then, a full month in advance, that you want to have a Mass said for your mother on her birthday, whether she's living or deceased, you want to have a Mass set for her. And then when you go to that Mass per se on the day that it's actually going to be celebrated, uh, what a beautiful thing that is, that you're able then to literally, during the sacred action itself, what's called the sacred action itself, of the Mass itself is what I'm referring to here, during the sacred action itself, you offer up that Mass for your mother with the priest's primary intention, which is also for your mother, 
And by the sacred action, I mean from the time you walk into the church and enter the pew a few minutes, maybe five or seven minutes before Mass begins, to recollect your thoughts. You can make your intention then for your mother. Then Mass begins. Uh, You can make your intention again once Mass has begun. Uh, During the penitential rite, you could ask God to cleanse you from all your sins so that you can make this a pleasing sacrifice for your mother's soul on her birthday, whether she's living or deceased, as I said. Then during the offertory, when the priest literally offers the bread and wine, when he says the words either aloud or solo voce, low voice, blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation, for through your goodness we have this bread to offer. Through your goodness we have this wine to offer. I say bread and wine because at that point it hasn't, been consecrated yet into the precious body and precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the priest says those words, if he says them aloud or solo voce, he says bread and wine proper, because it still is that at that moment. It's during those offertory words that you can especially put your own intention on the paten with the bread. You can put your own intention in the chalice with the wine. And as the priest makes the consecration, you lift up your mother during that sacred action. What a beautiful question. Thank you so much. And finally today, Rush writes in, Why did Jesus say, whoever wants to follow me must carry his cross? Oh, what a, what a great question, because he died on the cross. He's the head of the body that dies on the cross, and we're the members of that body. James 1, 2 through 4 says, My brothers and sisters, count it pure joy when you are involved in every sort of trial. Realize that when your faith is tested, this makes for endurance. Let your endurance come to its perfection so that you may be fully mature and lacking in nothing. Huh? Amen to that. And another thing I might add, you know, in regards to the beauty of the cross, uh, I, I want to say this, you know, uh, uh, w- there's a great quote by St. Augustine. He says, trials and tribulations offer us a chance to make reparation for our past sins and faults. On such occasions, the Lord comes to us like a divine physician to heal the wounds left by our sins. Tribulation, or the cross, is the divine medicine. So here's the thing. Why do I give that quote from Augustine? Because even though we have our crosses, because we're members of the body of Christ, and the body of Christ, literally, capital L, died on the cross— God can still make good out of those crosses. Those crosses we experience, he lets us use them as channels to make reparation for our past sins. How beautiful is that, right? And that's what we want to do. And then by uniting our, our, our crosses to the Lord, um, we can say, like Colossians 1.24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, That is the church. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners, pre-recorded or not, and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Charles Beery, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. To this very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless.